You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for June 2020. Today's episode is titled, Freedom in Christ. To lead and manage an organization well requires stakeholders who know Christ, as demonstrated by their progressive freedom from the power of sin. While total freedom from sin cannot be accomplished in this life, progressive freedom is essential to facilitate individual and organizational excellence, efficiency, and effectiveness. Any stakeholder whose actions reveal bondage to sin must be challenged to embrace the true freedom found in Christ. Progressive true freedom in Christ empowers people to walk at the highest level and releases the fullness of human potential and is therefore a requisite core principle to facilitate delivering world-class value propositions. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Freedom in Christ. Well, good morning and welcome to uh, this teaching on Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. I've titled this section, The Command to Stand in Freedom. So let me make some introductory comments and then I'll read the text to you and we'll, uh, we'll walk through the text together. Paul's battle for the singular gospel of the grace of Christ was intense. From the beginning of the epistle, the epistle of Galatians, this was the theme. Instead of the normal introductory greetings and compliments that characterize his other epistles, Paul began this epistle with the statement, Galatians 1 verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who calls you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. This is a very direct, intense uh, focus that he has on communicating to the Galatians. He's not trying to placate them in any, any way. He is trying to be in their face with his concern about their lack of understanding of the gospel. The singular gospel of the grace of Christ was his singular concern. There was and is and never will be any other gospel. There is only one gospel. And any attempt to synchronize the gospel with another message is an error. That would be a heresy. The common syncretistic error of the first century was the attempt to combine Judaism with the gospel of Christ. The false gospel combined a distorted view of circumcision with the true gospel. The gospel was not obeyed obedience to the Mosaic law, but, and plus the grace of Christ, but it was indeed the grace of Christ alone. There is no other gospel. Paul expounded on this truth throughout the, uh, the epistle. For example, he taught the three tenses of salvation. The past tense is regeneration. That is the sovereign work of God to justify and deliver those saved from the penalty of sin. The future tense is glorification, which is also the sovereign work of God to complete the process of deliverance from sin. The present tense is sanctification, which is the transformation of the regenerate into the likeness of Christ. Sanctification is affected by the sovereign work of God through human obedience and represents deliverance from the power of sin. Of the three tenses, the present tense appears confusing. It's confusing because it appears to combine divine sovereignty and meritocracy. That appears to be the syncretism that Paul is condemning. But in Galatians chapter 2, verses 20 and 21, he clarifies this. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. Clearly, that's past tense. And now he's going to switch to present tense. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, 
I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So you see he has both tenses there, the past and the present tense. And so that will create confusion. So he then says, I do not nullify the gospel of the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, to gain a righteous standing before God, which is comes through the past tense of salvation, that is a free gift of God. We do nothing to merit it. But the way that you know someone has received that free gift of God, has entered in the process of being saved, is they are in the process of being transformed. That's the present tense. So this is very important. This is the critical theme of the book, to understand the relationship of faith and works, how they go together. It's so easy to get that distorted, so easy to be confused, and we have to be clear on this. If we're not clear on it, we will be confused about the gospel. And being confused about the gospel will lead to bad fruit in life. Living in the true grace of God leads to a life of thankfulness and gratitude. Living to try to gain God's favor, living a life of works, leads to striving and to stress and to bondage. And that's what he's going to tell us here. Bondage is a mark of someone who has not really understood the gospel. So let me read to you now Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. This is out of the ESV. I'm going to read the whole text, and then we'll break it down verse by verse. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, that's a command, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage or no profit to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope, the hope of righteousness. Now, see, this is a reference to the future tense of salvation. We are looking forward to the hope of righteousness, the completion of the salvation process. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. That is, you were running your race well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from the one who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. In other words, a little false doctrine tox is toxic for all of you, all of your life. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. That's a pretty direct and um, aggressive term that he uses there, but it shows you the intensity of his passion and concern that they understand the gospel correctly. And we need to grab a hold of that too, because we have a lot of people today that do not understand the gospel, and they attend our churches every Sunday.
All right, well, let's go through this verse by verse. So verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul began chapter 5 with a declaration. Christ has set us free. That's a fact. What is this freedom? This is a freedom from the bondage of the works of the law. Freedom from the bondage of a gospel that would say we have to earn standing with God. That is an error. That is a lie. And based on that truth, we are charged before God to stand firm. To conjugate the verb there, stand firm, you have the present tense, active voice, imperative mood. The present tense implies continuous action. The active voice means I am responsible, you are responsible to stand firm. And then the imperative mood means it's a command. This is a command of Christ. And Paul, as an apostle of, of Christ himself, represented Christ. It's the same as if Christ himself gave us this command. And we're told in Matthew 28, 20, in what's popularly called the Great Commission, that we're, we're to be trained and training others to obey the commands of Christ. So here's a command. You, we need to learn to stand firm in the freedom of the gospel. The command to stand firm in the freedom from the law as a means of salvation, therefore, is standing firm in the grace of Christ through the work of Christ. This is the singular, sound, correct basis for salvation. There is no salvation through human meritocracy. There's no salvation through human merit. It comes through Christ alone. It is a free gift. We do nothing to deserve it. And Paul is so desperate to get his disciples to understand that and then to live in light of it. You see, Paul understands that what you believe will be reflected in your behavior. And the only way that's going to look well is when you are in the process of being transformed. Your behavior is being changed to conform to your position now as a, as a son or a daughter in the family of God. Verse 2, Paul goes on to say, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, then Christ will be of no advantage to you. Now, this is a very interesting text. First of all, he uses what's called a third-class condition, which means fulfillment is uncertain but likely. He's saying, now, some of you are going to accept circumcision. And if you do, basically, Christ will not be of any value to you. Because the real value of Christ to you is not so much as an example, as many would say, but the real advantage of Christ is that he provides the basis for you to be accepted with God. That's the real profit. That's the advantage. The word here that's used and translated advantage is the word for profit. And it means you will have a benefit. You know, when you work in a business endeavor, you have to perform some activity, deliver some value, deliver some, something that would be beneficial to someone else, and then they compensate you and you're able to make a profit. Profit follows the delivery of the product or service. Well, so it is here. This Christ being a prophet to you is a reference to the future tense of salvation, the completion of the process. Christ began it through regeneration. He continues it through sanctification, and he culminates it in glorification. So 
it absolutely, if you regress from that true gospel into a false gospel of meritocracy, where you think some way or another through your potency, you are obeying Christ and gaining standard with, standing with God, you're going back into bondage, and Christ will, be, will not profit you, meaning you don't really know him. You don't really know him. Now, that's a startling thing. Because I think if the truth were known about most of the people and most of the congregations that I'm aware of, very few of them really recognize the truth of the gospel of grace. Most of them are buying into some form of meritocracy as their gospel. And you have to know, you have to question, do they really even know the Lord? Verse 3, Paul says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, Paul is the Jew of Jews, the Hebrew of Hebrews, as he says in Philippians 3, and he's saying, I, I, I understand this, and I can testify to this reality that if you try to follow the law as a basis for gaining favor and merit with God, then you need to know that you are in debt to keep it all. You just can't keep part of it. There are some that have tried to contend that if you just obey one law, it's like keeping it all. But that's not what Scripture says. Paul here, and then again, again in James 2 and in other places, it's clear that obedience to the law is to the whole law, every jot and tittle, not just one. And so that makes the standard of over 600 laws in the Old Testament so utterly challenging and difficult for people that don't have the power to do it that it's impossible. So Paul is trying to paint this picture with great clarity. It is, there is no way possible that any human being can ever fully obey the law. He made that point with great clarity in chapter 3 of this epistle, and he's reinforcing it again here. Now, this term circumcision here, he's using this term circumcision metaphorically. He's using it as a reference to the law. Now, that's not the way the term circumcision began. If you go back in the Old Testament, you realize that circumcision was originally connected to the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. And it was a sign of that covenant. That was an unconditional covenant. It was a covenant of promise. It required nothing of man. God was going to do this work and fulfill the promise to Abraham, which included the blessing of justification by faith through Christ, according to Galatians chapter 3. So this is a use of circumcision that is metaphorical. Later on in the chapter, he's going to use circumcision in a different sense, and we'll talk about that then. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. Now, human works and the grace of Christ are mutually exclusive as a basis for entering the salvation process. That is gaining right standing with God. Being in Christ positionally, being adopted into the family of God. These are mutually exclusive. To embrace a works-based approach to righteousness with God excludes the grace of Christ. The Galatians had at some point embraced the grace of Christ, but then appeared to revert back to a works-based salvation, to works as the basis for their justification. 
Paul called this condition being fallen away from grace. Apparently, this was a common error of first century believers, and probably it was a common error because of the strong heritage of Judaism. Verse 5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The focus of Paul's epistle to the Galatians has been, so far, mainly justification and sanctification. That is the past and the present tenses of salvation. But here he explicitly dresses glorification, the future tense. A mark of a true believer is hope in the completion of the salvation process. Not hope in their ability, but hope in God and hope in his promise to redeem them fully and save them from the very presence of sin, which will happen as we transition into the next existence. The sovereign work of justification is the beginning of the process. The mark of justification is faith in Christ, and Paul tells us in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that faith is not a work. Faith is an expression of the work of God in us, that empowers us now to express faith in Christ. Without that empowering of the Spirit of God in us, we would never express faith in Christ. And this leads, this leads to us now engaging in the process of sanctification. Sanctification is the divinely empowered process of aligning our practices with our position. The mark of sanctification is spiritual transformation, Christ being formed in us, according to Galatians 4.19. It is then expressed through love. And we have to remember, love is sacrificially serving the purpose of God in others. The consummation of the salvation process is the sovereign work of glorification. To this end, we have hope. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Summarizing his argument, Paul changed from a metaphor, metaphorical use of the word circumcision as he used in verses 2 and 3 to a literal meaning. Here he's talking about the physical act of circumcision. When a person has been physically circumcised, whether he's been circumcised or not is irrelevant because circumcision physically doesn't do anything. What matters is faith working through love, which is an indication that someone has been regenerated by the power of the Spirit. Faith, love, and hope comprise this powerful threefold chord mentioned in Ecclesiastes 4, verses 9 through 12. These virtues bear witness and testimony to the reality of the process of salvation at work in a person. In verse 5, Paul stated that those who have faith in Christ have hope that the process of salvation will be completed. This means that they are positionally in Christ and Christ is progressively being transformed, being formed in them and the end will be glorification. That whole, that three-step process, past, present, future, that whole process is salvation. Now sadly today, we typically talk about people, someone getting saved. And I, I say that is a very superficial way to look at it. The more Pauline, more robust way to look at it is recognize salvation not so much as an event, but as a process. As a process that's validated by virtue of transformation and culminates in glorification. And it all begins with the sovereign work of God in regeneration. 
Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? In verses 1 through 6, Paul focused on the false doctrine of his disciples. They had bought into false doctrine. Now beginning in verse 7, he focused on the false teachers, the ones that were that propagated this false doctrine. He employed the imagery of a race to challenge his disciples. The Galatians had knowledge of the benefit of faith, love, and hope that comes from the grace of Christ. Paul pleaded with them using a rhetorical question. He knew it was the Judaizers who influenced them. Like a world-class athlete leading a race, the Galatian Christians were maturing. They were displaying the virtues of faith, love, and hope but they were influenced to abandon the singular gospel. They ran off course. They got off track. They regressed to a gospel of meritocracy. They strayed from their course and fell from grace. Paul's rhetorical question then was, was asked. He said, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? And the implied answer is, you shouldn't do this. You know better. You know the truth. And you've abandoned the truth. He doesn't have to go into detail about it because this should be a very convicting question because they should know the answer. Verse 8, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. The, the cause of this regression was not God but themselves. To regress from the singular gospel is to fall from the grace means of salvation. They cease to trust in Christ alone and began to trust in themselves. They be tried to become their own savior. This is the classic error of those who would try to appeal to meritocracy as a basis for acceptance with God. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now he uses a new metaphor here. Falling from the grace method of salvation is a serious error that will negatively impact everything in their lives. Using the imagery from food preparation, Paul noted that just as leaven placed in a lump of dough naturally disperses throughout the whole lump, so also a little error infects everything. Doctrinal soundness relative to the gospel is essential as a foundational truth of Christianity and is a predicate for putting our belief into our behavior. Now this is critical. You have to have correct understanding about the truth. We're told to rightly divide the word of truth. Being doctrinally sound is important. Not for the purpose of being right, but for the purpose of living correctly, showing that the Spirit of God is truly in us and that we really have been born again. Verse 10, I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Paul is confident in the preserving power of the Lord to restore the Galatians to their right mind. In Romans 1, Paul explained that the judgment of God on those who failed to properly respond to general revelation, that is, unregenerate people, was in part a debased mind. In Galatians, Paul focused on the preserving power of God on his people who turn away from special revelation, you see, the gospel, the grace of Christ, is part of special revelation. You can't see it in general revelation. You only see it in the word. This was a proclamation of the perseverance of the true saints. But for those who sought to draw the Lord's people away from this truth, there will be judgment. 
There was a stern warning against anyone proclaiming a gospel contrary to the singular gospel. Verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, in that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Some way or another, people thought that Paul may have been the one that was, that was proclaiming this false gospel. That is just ludicrous. There's no way that Paul would do that. Okay, Paul rebuked them. He uses a first-class condition here, which assumes the reality of a premise only for the sake of argument. So he, say, he said, okay, let's just assume that I am preaching circumcision. I am preaching meritocracy. Why would I still be persecuted then for the cross? Because the offense of the cross has been removed. Why would that happen? He said that would never happen. I am clearly not one the one guilty of misleading you. Someone else is misleading you. I'm preaching a pure gospel of the grace of Christ. These other people are not, and that's why you're being deceived. In verse 12, now he really gets very direct and very clear about what he thinks. I wish those who unsettle, that word unsettle means to stir up, you would emasculate themselves. In other words, that they would be self-destroyed. They would, they would be self-destructive. In other words, kind of like commit suicide, only he doesn't use that terminology. He uses the terminology, make themselves a eunuch, which means they're unable to procreate. And this is kind of imagery for basically killing their doctrine. If you can't procreate, whatever's in you cannot continue. And so these people with this false doctrine, Paul wants them to stop. And the best way for that to happen is don't make any disciples around that doctrine, that false doctrine of Judaism. <clears throat> the Judaizers needed to self-implode. They needed to be done away with because they do not proclaim a true gospel. They are proclaim a distorted false gospel. Paul is really intense throughout this epistle. He spent four and a half chapters now pounding on these Galatians trying to get, get them clear about what the gospel really is and why Judaism, the, the meritocracy of Judaism, which is a picture of how false gospels can arise up, that false gospel cannot, will not stand, will not produce good fruit, do not listen, do not obey, give it up, embrace the truth of the singular gospel. Wow, he is in your face with this. Well, let me just give you a couple of points of theology and some application. So let me just focus in on faith, hope, and love. This is, of course, we hear, we've heard these three virtues put together. These are Christian virtues. And this is an example of a threefold cord. Faith is the visible evidence of the unseen reality of the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life through regeneration that places a person into the family of God. Upon regeneration, positionally one is righteous in Christ and stands justified before God. But one's practices must be aligned through the process of sanctification. Hope is the expectation that God will faithfully bring his work of salvation into completion through sanctification that culminates in glorification. Paul alluded to this in his epistle to the Philippians. He said this in Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 
that appears to be a reference to sanctification. And now in Galatians 5, 5, he said, And through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, this is a reference to the future tense of salvation. So the hope of righteousness, the completion of the salvation process, is the glorification that occurs when we transition to the next existence. The prominent virtue manifested in the process of sanctification is love. The essence of love is sacrificially serving the purpose of God in others. It is the mark of regenerate people, truly regenerate people, not just people who say they're regenerate, but purely people who've been regenerated. Faith reveals regeneration, the past tense of salvation. Hope denotes, implies, and infers glorification, the future tense of salvation, when the position and practice of a Christian are indeed fully congruent. And love evidences sanctification, which is the present tense, present reality of salvation, in which our position and our practice are in the process of being made congruent. One who's truly known by God is in the process of being saved and will display the virtues of faith, hope, and love. Now, just a word of application. I want to focus on freedom for a moment. Prior to the 18th century French Enlightenment, people thought of themselves as part of a community, not as individuals. The highest good was was what was was best for the community, not what was necessarily best for the individual. Consequently, people tended to be more sacrificial for the good of the community and less narcissistic for their own good. Since this enlightenment, the highest good has been deemed to be the individual. So now people are more narcissistic and less sacrificial. Consequently, today, the common mantra is, what's in it for me? With this emboldened narcissism, there is a presumed expectation that individual rights or freedoms are paramount. With this mindset, people today consider the idea of freedom. They focus on the idea of freedom. It is commonly understood that individual freedom is the freedom to do as one pleases. Any consideration of sacrifice for the collective whole is subordinated to individual rights. Freedom is viewed as the removal of impediments that keep individuals from expressing their will. Sadly, many professing Christians embrace this view, but it is not Pauline. The Pauline view of freedom focused on freedom from the bondage of sin that kept man separated from God and impaired mankind's obedience to the will of God. The issue of sin had to be addressed for mankind to be justified before God. Christianity presents Christ as the singular efficacious solution to the sin problem and the corresponding problem with death. Many professing Christians give mental assent to this truth, but don't understand the depth of its implications. Among Christians, freedom commonly means that one can do as one wishes. The presumption is that Christ empowers humans to do their will according to their ways. This is far from the truth. Paul began chapter 5 of Galatians with a declaration that Christ has set mankind free from meritocracy as a basis for gaining acceptance with God. This means that those who have received the grace of Christ are free from the bondage of sin and death. The imperative is then to live in this freedom. 
Do the will of God according to the ways of God. Die to narcissism and sacrifice to serve God. Those who know Christ have neither the right nor the power to do their will according to their ways. Rather, they should be so full of gratitude for the free gift of life in Christ that they can do nothing else but live to do the will of God. Paul stated it well with a seminal verse of the epistle, which I've read before, but I'm going to read again. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The truth of the grace of God in Christ to redeem us, that is God's people, his ecclesia, from the certain penalty of sin and death should so overwhelm us with gratitude that we can do nothing else but be slaves to Christ. This means that freedom in Christ simply means a change in ownership. Before receiving the grace of Christ, everyone, every human being, is enslaved to sin and death. But after receiving Christ, one is enslaved to Christ. This is real freedom. We've changed masters. We're no longer part of the kingdom of darkness. We're now part of the kingdom of light. But there's a king in both domains. Satan and his minions rule in the kingdom of darkness. We were servants to them at one time. If you know Christ, then now you no longer serve them, but you serve Christ. He is now our master. We are his bond servants. The idea of freedom, freedom doesn't mean I'm free to do whatever I want to do. It simply means I've changed masters. To build any organization that delivers excellence requires people who live in real freedom from the penalty of sin and death. For those people who live in bondage to sin, their minds are debased which means they are impaired and unable to make wise choices. In a created but fallen universe, the only way to live well is to live aligned with God. Fallen mankind is in bondage to sin and therefore unable to make wise choices. This means that fallen mankind is unable to produce consistently excellent products and services over the long term. But in Christ, mankind is free from the bondage to sin and has the capacity and the potency from God to align with him and therefore deliver excellent value to those that are served. May the Lord give us grace to so live and so deliver excellent value based on the truth of the gospel of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.